You're listening to the Pandemic Podcast. We equip you to live the most real life possible in the face of today's crises. My name is Matt Bodker, and I'm joined with my two good friends, Dr. Stephen Kissler, an epidemiologist at Harvard School of Public Health, and Dr. Mark Kissler, a doctor at the University of Colorado Hospital. Good morning. Happy Easter. Good to see you. It's been two weeks. How are you guys? I'm doing well. How you doing, Matt? Hanging in there. Uh, good. Hanging in there is it. I am feeling fatigued as if I almost feel as if it's March 2020. I feel like it's like I, <laughs> You're I feel having that kind of, yeah. I'm having flashbacks. Yep. I'm just feeling fatigued. That's yep. uh, that's how What's I going feel. On? How What's about going you? On? What's the? Uh... Oh, I mean, I don't. I think just Easter for us celebrating it is it's just exhausting for me because I have to do an Easter vigil. It's mm-hmm. at the church. I get home late, and then for those of you who have kids, the kids don't adjust to late nights they their Mm -hmm. calendar is they get up at six or six and then when it's easter and the easter bunny's here right that's that that makes it even earlier and so then just the recuperation from that i just i just hit me and so i've been tired and that's been the big thing and just all the stuff that's going on with Mm -hmm. the the variants and the news like i said i was just telling you guys before we start recording we can never go two weeks ever again without recording because (laughs) my notes are like 14 pages i was telling you guys already you know what it's so overwhelming how much to talk about and like my curiosity of what's really going on i just want to say forget it everyone we're doing a 45 minute guided meditation by mark and steven (laughs) by by me yeah Yeah, you guys that's uh... I am just going to, I'm going to take it in. You guys are leading this one, that kind of stuff. So, but we're not, we have a lot to cover. So here's a number of things that I want to chat about before we get going. Just the normal stuff. If you can support us, that would be awesome. You can do that at patreon.com slash pandemic podcast. That's huge. As little as $5 a month goes a long way, as well as one-time gifts. That's all it takes. It's PayPal, Venmo on the show notes. It helps us keep it going. We can get more editing, faster stuff. We really appreciate that if you can do that. We need that support as much as possible. And the reviews, keep them coming. We love them for better and for worse. Even the critical feedback helps us to adjust and help us bring better content, your direction. You can do that through Apple Podcasts or whatever other directory allows for kind of that kind of uh, reviews or stars, whatever it may be. I think that's all the good stuff. So let's get going. Um, I'm going to go straight into in the news because we have a lot. Like I said, when I did it uh, this morning going through this, it just never ended. And so I kept clipping things. The notes is about a month worth of stuff. So I want to start with, gosh, I don't even know. Where, let's start with some good news. Let's start with that. I saw here last week, Mark and Steven, that the U.S. suicides dropped in 2020. This is a huge shock, right? I mean, we, I think for me, from March, April, May, I had friends telling me this is ridiculous. Lockdowns are terrible. I'm not saying that lockdowns are a virtuous thing that actually ennoble people and make people inspired to do great things, but that, that, that suicides were on the rise and all these things. And I'm curious of what's going to unfold in the next six months when we see how 2020 fared for all these things that I heard domestic violence increased. I would imagine that probably did. And that was just a really terrible thing. So other things are probably going to be real, but this is a small bit of good news about Six percent decrease in suicides in 2020, and I didn't know. Mark, Stephen, start with you, Stephen. Is there anything that you could even imagine of the reason why that would have happened whatsoever? I'm. Just, it's just great news. Yeah, I mean, I, I, it's really hard to say. I think, I think we would need to bring on a, a whole, a whole crew of people who are experts in psychology and all of these things to to really understand. I, I don't. I mean, it's 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 unexpected to me too. I mean, this has been an incredibly tough year for so many reasons. So I think I think yeah, to my mind, it's really just one one small bit of of good news in the midst of it all. Yeah, Mark, do you have anything to add to that? That any ideas? speculations basically that are not backed by i think it's it's just great news and i think that in the in the reckoning of this year we're gonna have to cut the data a lot of different ways and start to understand Mm -hmm. what's what's happened and attributing causation to those things is going to be difficult if not impossible for a lot of this stuff i'll take that that small piece or that it seems like a big piece of good news to me and so i think i'll take that as it is that's good yeah Mm -hmm. great Awesome. One thing I want to throw right away before we get into the fourth wave, because I have a lot of questions about that. But I saw this, I think this morning, Mark, about Regeneron says antibody cocktail uh, injection prevents COVID. 
I know I think this is something that's new on your horizon as well. Mm-hmm. Do you know anything about this whatsoever? Well, it, it, my understanding of this is that it prevents symptomatic infections, especially early once somebody has been ex- has a known exposure. And so okay. at least the way that I'm interpreting the study design here is that this combination of their this monoclonal antibody cocktail that they have looks like it it reduces the risk of progressing to symptomatic COVID. And so what I suspect is that they're positioning this as something that people can use if they have a household contact who's infected. And so you have somebody who it works out in the community, gets COVID. What do you do for all of the folks who live at home? I think this may be something in the primary care community medicine setting where you could say, oh, I can offer this to all of the close contacts and reduce the risk of maybe you have an aunt who's living at home or grandma who's living at home getting severe symptomatic COVID from that exposure. And so I think, you know, that's pretty interesting and, and that's good. This is something that we've been using in mild to moderate COVID in various settings and already. And so I think this potentially may increase some of the applications for that. And so there's that. It is different. It's a little bit different from the vaccine on a couple of levels, right? Where one is that it doesn't seem to actually prevent infection. What I'm seeing is that it prevents symptomatic infection, um, so reduces the severity of the infection. And so, of course, individuals could also still transmit, even if they're asymptomatic or less symptomatic from the infection. But yeah, overall, kind of an interesting uh, new little piece of data on that particular therapy. Yeah. I mean, good news. It's another just, hey, another tool in our arsenal to help uh, the spread. I'm not sure when it would actually be available. I'm assuming right now you couldn't do that right now. It's just, hey, I got I got, I got exposure. Go to your doctor and get Regeneron. Or is that even possible? Well, it is. I mean, it is out. It, it is available. So people have been getting it. And so I think that it's more a question of if there's adequate supply and if the data is robust okay. enough to really pivot the indications for use that way. That's I think it's pretty feasible. Okay, great. So let's get straight in the fourth way, because this is a lot of conversation. Steve, I want to talk to you. I mean, I have pages of information on this stuff. I mean, Dr. Osterholm, other people just talking about this this, this fourth wave, the intensity of it, the fear of it, uh, the complexity of it. And I want to throw it to you because I want to try and package this as much as I can. I'll let you run with it for just a, a handful of minutes, however you want to go. Because I'm still confused about the fourth wave, because we're seeing the upper Northeast Michigan being pounded. And, and it's, and, and, or at least it seems like that, at least from we get from the news. And there's a lot of this stuff about the Northeast, Northeast, Northeast. And so first of all, why on earth is the Northeast getting so obliterated? So I have my theories and maybe you can correct me. Okay. Maybe it's a compilation of factor A. There was no second or third real big intense wave. And so it's, it's having ramifications for that. Whereas something like California or New York city got obliterated. So the immunity is already there. Also, it seems like they were picking up at the same time vaccines were starting to pick up. So they didn't get the chance to be ahead of the curve with vaccines. So so in my mind, I'm thinking, okay, A, we're in a heavy place where vaccines are pretty well established and rolling out. So that's a safety measure. B, those communities that have already had tons of exposure probably can rest a little bit safely with that. And then those people who haven't, like other, which are many, many other towns around the country who haven't had the second and third wave, it is a possibility, but maybe mitigated by the, by the vaccine. So in light of all this stuff that I'm seeing, fourth wave, fourth wave, it's coming. There's, there's a fear. What is your assessment right now? Why the Northeast? And is it really feasible that the Northeast could happen to Nebraska, Colorado, or at this point in time, are we maybe in a place where we could be feel safe? Yeah, I just want to take a step back. That you're you, you've really become quite the epidemiologist over the past year. <laughs> <laughs> they are that was, right. That was, that was great. Do I, can, yeah. I get, can I get an honorary certificate from the, the, the Harvard School of Public Health? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> just come on over. <laughs> that was great. Um, I don't know how much I have to add to that. Yeah. No, I think. I mean, I think. I think you're right. There's so much here that has to do with 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 timing, with what specifically is circulating, with what's been circulating before, and as we've spoken so many times about just with luck too and luck probably isn't the major driving factor but but there's an element of it that especially in the timing and the actual severity of things it matters a lot if you happen to have a couple of really big super spreading events that then spread it out into the community and really allow it to gather steam quickly that that can really change the course of a local outbreak profoundly so uh, yeah i think i've i've lost track of how many waves we've seen in so many different places but i think just to sort of break down the state of things right now so 
Michigan, I've I've been watching with with a fair amount of concern for sure because they 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 really are seeing a major surge right now, where cases and hospitalizations are at the levels they were during the peak of their wintertime outbreak, wow. and that's that's not something that I expected. I, I expected basically everywhere to see the maximum of transmission in January, and so. So that's really giving me as an epidemiologist pause because that doesn't really fit into my conceptual model of how this thing ought to behave. Now, again, there's there, there's a story of variants here. There's a story of timing and vaccine uptake and previous transmission. The, the Midwest was one of the last places to get hit with the first wave, whereas up here in the Northeast, we had a huge, huge surge in April of last year. And yeah. so so all of these things are sort of combining to, to create the landscape that we're seeing now. I think that the, the, uh, the places where we're seeing a lot of spread, if we zoom out a little bit past just these couple of weeks really are generally the population centers, the places where there's a lot of really high population density and places where there's a lot of connectivity, like international connectivity. So even though California is doing much better now, they had one of the worst wintertime surges that was partially driven by variants that we first detected in California that are now spreading across the rest of the U.S., a lot of the variants that we're seeing here now in the Northeast are the ones that were first detected in California. So in a sense, we're just sort of piggybacking off of their winter surge. And that's prolonging mm-hmm. our tail and causing some surges here too. Although so far, the surges in the Northeast generally aren't, uh, to my mind, as as huge in magnitude as, as the one that we've seen in Michigan. So all of that is sort of playing together. I do think that, again, we're, we're vaccinating people at a at an incredible rate right now and that's that's hugely variable among different places in the country too which we can talk about at some point as well but I mean certainly in the northeast the vaccine uptake is is pretty quick and we still have a long way to go and so my hope is that with that and with the changing into the summer we'll be able to keep a lot of these things at bay but the variants do make it a lot harder i mean they really are more infectious generally depending on which one we're talking about and so it is it is still a bit of a race yeah okay well, in light of this, you said a couple of things. So number one is the Northeast was had an uptake of, of vaccine, right? Like in the sense of they're more probably prone to get the vaccine versus we know that, I, at least I just saw from the article this morning, the South is a little more hesitant in general. So there are some places in the South by which there's now a surplus of vaccine or getting to the point where you're probably searching for people to get the vaccine. I would imagine the Pacific Northwest, California, the, the Northeast, a little more likely to get that. So all the more concern about Again, the Northeast is being hammered, at least Michigan. Now you're saying that this this Michigan thing was a cause for you to pause. Is there you may have already said it, I didn't quite see it. Is there anything that you can see with Michigan particularly that okay, that that makes sense? Or is it still kind of like, well, this might make sense, but this is a weird anomaly besides the tale of California, but the tale goes through Colorado and, and Nebraska <laughs> and all the way to the Northeast. So I'm like, how did jump over i know i get it the, the variants here in colorado as well clearly but do you is there anything that makes sense of this particularly or not really it's really hard to i i i i mean there are any number of things that we could say that would say well maybe to to explain why michigan and why not other places but i think i think the difficulty is is that we'll then have to revise those statements in 6 weeks when it's somewhere else or if it's somewhere else as as we've been <laughs> yeah, doing totally. throughout right like yeah. it was the yeah. the first question was why italy and then why new york and then why florida and then yeah. why different yeah. places and and part of it is just the way that the disease spreads i think part of it is just that it it because it happened to be there and yeah. happened to have those events and and it, uh, certainly the there are behavioral elements there are elements with vaccine uptake but i don't think that any of us could have said a priori that like Michigan is the place where this is going to happen. In hindsight, we can we can explain some of that, but that doesn't help us explain why not other places that have similar landscapes as well. So while while there are ways of sort of making sense of it, it's not quite like the the we've been talking a lot about causality today. I love it. It's it's not quite like the predictive type of causality where you can say A implies B in all cases, which is like the thing that we're often like looking for. Really it's more of just sort of like giving an account of what happened, but something that's really far from watertight. And oftentimes that's the best we can do in epidemiology, which is frustrating, but yeah. Sure. Mark, do you want to add anything? You're leaning into the microphone. Oh, <laughs> I, I don't know. Maybe I just get excited anytime we start to talk about some of these bigger picture 
kind of these, <laughs> these intersections between the scientific and the philosophical frameworks, because I think it, it's it's something that doesn't get a, a huge amount of conversation all the time, but it's some, it's just something we've been living so much over the last year and just understanding the ways that all of this intersects with like our psychology and the decisions we make and like whether or not a get grocery pickup or go to the store or XYZ. And I think it's just interesting to me to think about that sort of chain of connection between these really foundational scientific principles and how I spend my Saturday or things like that. Yeah. And so I, that's all. I'm just, I'm interested in, in thinking about ways that we might be able to tie, you know, this, this idea of causation and stuff in, in other ways. Sure. Yeah. I'm, I'm sure Exactly this, the idea that you said, Stephen, that the, the complexity of causation, different kinds of causation, not a direct link, just feeds all the more of the hesitancy, conspiracy theories, because it's not tight. It's not it's not airtight. It's an, oh, this, why not here? And why here? There's no explanation. And that causes a lot of gaps, right? Right. Yeah, and then we gonna, fill the gaps with addressing other Stephen, but I'm going to jump in just because I feel like it, I guess. That's, <laughs> I'll, I'll let Stephen have the last word. The other thing I was thinking is about how it seems that temperament to me or your baseline, where you're at with stuff, really, really influences how you deal with uh, something like what Stephen just said. And so if he says epidemiology is really good at making some of these post-hoc things that can adjust our behavior in the future, but it's really tough to make an you know, a priori say this is the place where it's going to be bad, there is a certain cohort of people who are going to hear that and say, we need to be extra careful all the time. There's another cohort of people who are going to say, it doesn't matter what we do. <laughs> you know, it doesn't, it doesn't matter because we're never going to know. We should just do it. And, <laughs> and, and then anywhere along that spectrum. And that is a really complex thing to deal with. And it's it's funny because often I've, you know, through this pandemic, I've had the experience of talking to somebody else who I assumed was at the same point on the spectrum as me, and then realizing halfway through the conversation that they're at a very different point on the spectrum than I am. And just feeling that that like conversational, here we are now <laughs> in very different places than I thought we were. Yeah. And we don't have a shared consensus around how we deal with risk and causality and things like that. It's very hard to backpedal from that point. And, and I think having, I have a certain tolerance for some awkwardness in conversation anyway, just a baseline. And so I think that maybe is, you know, <laughs> helps with, but I, but it's, that has been, it's, that feels to me to be the root of a lot of really hard disagreement and a lot of really hard and rifts in relationships over the course of the pandemic is, are some of these things, where are you at in that spectrum of how you respond to uncertainty like that? Anyway, just a thought. Oh Yeah. That's great. I mean, not to go on a tangent, but my wife, and I'll put it back to you, Stephen, to, to, to chime in the last minute here on this, but my wife went to a party outside the other day, just a, a small gathering, and she was being safe and wearing a mask, and she was the only one, but she just wanted to be extra safe. And she was at the very end and got into a conversation with a lady and just just politely asked, how have you been faring with all this? And that opened uh, a Pandora's box that my wife wished she never would have opened. And, and it, was, it was how she takes hydrochloroquine every day and uh, you got to read the alternative websites and realize that there is no scientific evidence that the vaccines have any efficacy whatsoever and all this stuff on and on and on for like 45 minutes and <laughs> made just Jan really and then, and then constantly and then and like literally getting really close to her like in her face and then grabbing her phone and like oh let me see the pictures oh by the way I've been exposed like tons of times this past month but I'm not getting it don't worry and so and this this, this you know like you're like how how do I back how do I back out of this and you you, you don't know what you're gonna get when you just ask a simple question like how you been doing through all this? And then you, you realize I should have never asked that question because <laughs> that's, that's not what I wanted to be around. It's, right. it's hard. Right. Right. And we need Steven. To, oh, yeah. good Mark. Good. And yet we need that in some ways. That's, that's what we need the most of because otherwise we're all getting our information from these super siloed, super isolated places and self-reinforcing you know that and without some dialogue and friction that feels pretty yeah. socially bad frankly and and it's mm -hmm. not about winning people over to the side of truth or whatever even as much as just let's have a little bit of conversational contact here some reality and and recognizing that I may be wrong like where I'm sitting on the spectrum may also be skewed as much as I feel like I'm, I'm right going into these conversations and just having a little bit of that flex, I think, but not, not fearing the contact and not fearing that, that friction or else I don't know what, what would happen if, if we just don't engage, that seems to be worse. Yeah. Yeah. I've been always been amazed of how everybody else has these cognitive biases except for me. Yeah. I don't Why, why, why am I the only one who just, I just, I'm just, gifted I just don't with see this. it. Right. <laughs> <I'm> just <kidding. laughs> 
<laughs> so yeah, yeah, I know that's the, that's the ultimate red flag, right? Is when you look in the mirror, yeah. you were the only totally. person in the world who knows. <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally. Oh my gosh, oh, yeah. Steve, you have to add this 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 fun. Oh topic. gosh, yeah. I mean, so one one of the things that this was making me think of, and Mark, this brought to mind about that, like these questions of causality and temperament, and sort of where we set our own personal responsibility. I have been reading this book that Mark recommended to me called The Concept of Mind by Gilbert Ryle, and it's it, it basically just there, there's a whole section of it where he does this intense examination of the word because. What do we mean when we say because? And the the metaphor that he keeps bringing up to illustrate this idea is, so there's an event in which the glass broke. And there are two different ways of assigning causality to that. You can say that the glass broke because the rock hit it, or you can say that the glass broke because the glass was brittle. Both of those are valid causal statements, but one of them expresses a disposition of the glass, and one of them expresses an event in which it getting struck by a rock was the immediate cause of that glass to break. But it wouldn't have happened if the glass hadn't been brittle, but it also wouldn't have happened if the glass hadn't been struck. And so I think that there's a really interesting mm-hmm. element here where our our temperaments, our personalities, whatever, cause us to insert ourselves at different places in that and sometimes at multiple places but it's you ask yourself then what is my responsibility is my responsibility to strengthen the glass is my responsibility to remove the glass from the line of fire or is my responsibility to intercept the rock is it to what are we what are we doing here and i think that depending on our profession depending on our role in life we we can change and as an epidemiologist i spend most of my time trying to strengthen the glass or to to do something like that to 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 create dispositional changes in the dispositional landscape. But here we're talking about Michigan, right? Where it had a disposition to be infected. It had this this disposition of brittleness. But that's someone else could say, well, that's not why we have this major outbreak there, because you had to actually have the rock hit it. You had to have the variant come in. You had to have the super spreading event. You had there was this whole chain of sort of linear causal events that caused this epidemic. And so there's that can cause this real disconnect because we can argue so much about what 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 is the reason for this. And and we're actually speaking about two, on a two entirely different planes, both of which mm-hmm are incredibly important. But I think that's that that might lie at the root of some of these these disagreements and these uncertainties that we have about really what's happening right now. Mm-hmm. Mm, I feel like I'm that's always good. coming into the room after I hear a crash. That's that's the role of the, <laughs> well, that's, the, the yeah, hospitalist yeah, that's a doctor, in this scenario, right? right? Is right. That it's well here we are looking through the broken <laughs> window, and and I think that that as just being conscious of the ways that that both with this illness and with others over time creates a certain disposition in me and that that is that that involvement with frailty and disease is not inconsequential in the way that I start to look at the world and just being aware of that the change that's happened in me over the last 10 15 years as I've been engaged in different sorts of kind of training and stuff like that so very interesting I'd like to yeah we should, we should talk we should, let's get back to the the news but I think this this sort of stuff is I think really really important and it and it has some ties I think Matt to how you're feeling this week too yeah. um, and so it's not I don't think it's it's not just an intellectual game but I think it's pretty material to what's going on sure I agree. Yeah, I knew we'd get back to the news, but I'll just plant this seed. It's probably another loaded gun. I know we're probably going down another team. But Mark, you as a doctor, what you in me, the causation for me is the final cause, right? Sometimes it's getting to the point where like walking with someone and not being so set on the instrumental cause, which is a doctor, right? But then which we you talked about how medicine and how it can be so rigid and it's pushing through, looking for, for what's wrong, diagnose it, fix it, move on versus some people, Not it's not your main profession, but like want some final cause, like meaning purpose behind all of this, that, that that's really important. I think what you're saying is about me is I'm there's probably a little struggle right now. I'm feeling tired. And this idea of final causation of purpose and meaning of like, where's this all going? Like I, that, that motivates me when I get a little bit tired, I don't see it. I get foggy and I get a little run down and I, I need a little, I need a little, uh, a little amp. So I'm like, man, I kept thinking the other day, I'm like, I can't wait till we're all in person. We can do one together and I'll get amped up again and all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. So I know we got to get going, yeah. keep going the news, but I, there's so many levels of this. And, and when you talk about people going to extreme directions, that's some final causality of some one world movement and that's where it's going. And that's the kind of stuff. And it's, yeah. as we go back always, it's complicated. That's so right. <clears throat> speaking of complicated, these things with these these uh, variants are complicated. Stephen, 
Do you have anything to speak on this double mutant? I'm curious of of of, of California. I've seen some articles about this. I, know I didn't mention to you before. Don't know if you're aware of this, and I know it's still up for grabs. Is there any information about this double mutant and whether it might be something that's we should be concerned about? So it's it's so hard to know. I mean, we're starting to see these variants pop up all over the place. Yeah, I I keep thinking about this this book I had when I was a kid, where the, it, it was like full of these zoo animals, but the pages were like slit so that you could turn the top of it and the bottom of it, and then you would like see this like elephant mashed up with a rhinoceros, mashed up with a giraffe or something. And so I feel like these double mutants are in a sense like at first we were just like <laughs> oh my gosh, we you have that totally book now. Just so you know, we got the, we pulled that out. And the kids well, love it. Shout out to the kids. I mean, it's just like totally groomed for epidemiology, right? So you're like, oh, variants, animal variants, and okay, yeah, go ahead. Right, but yeah, I mean, that's that's part of the part of what's happening here is that like the virus is just beginning to sort of mix and match these things too. It's it's mutating. There's there's some evidence. I think this is relatively rare still, but the that the coronavirus can also do what we call recombine, where if you're infected with like multiple variants or or different things, then it can actually like share genetic information with each other. And so it can then sort of pick up mutations that are in other variants, which all sounds really terrifying. But ultimately, what we have is this whole landscape where there's just a lot of variation in the genetic landscape of the virus. And we don't have a very good sense of what it does. Because again, the virus's behavior is so contingent on the population in which it spreads that... that <laughs> keep getting back to this, but like, it's there, there's, there's so little that we can attribute to the virus itself. Because the virus, the virus can't spread without us. It, 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 everything about what we see is the interaction of the virus with us, with our immune system, with our behavior, with everything else. And so, extracting sort of is it is it the mutation, or is it the time at which the virus emerged, or is it the mutation plus the level of immunity and the type of immunity that already exists in the population? It's really hard to tell, and and that's why we we keep coming up with with this kind of frustrating conclusion that we don't really know. If these variants, if some of these particular variants are things worth being concerned about or not, because sometimes a variant will get lucky and will spread like wildfire in a given community, but that doesn't necessarily mean there's anything intrinsic to it that caused it to do that. Or even if it is, it doesn't guarantee that it will do the same thing when it's set loose in another community either. And so really the the the, the standard of evidence that we're looking for for identifying variants of concern is that they're causing major outbreaks in a given community, and then they do the same in multiple other communities that they're exposed to. But that, ex that that requires quite a bit of time and a lot of observation to really see that happening. And so I think that it's, again, it's things that we are watching closely. Sometimes we have a mechanistic reason to believe that a virus might behave in a certain way where we know that specific mutations give it certain phenotypes or certain behaviors and an ability to, to bind to ourselves more effectively or an ability to whatever caused some more severe illness. And so we can begin to sort of interpret it in those terms as well. But it's sort of this whole constellation of evidence that we're trying to piece together. And so just because something is a double mutant doesn't necessarily mean that it's scarier. Most mutations are actually harmful to the virus, that it will most mutations cause the virus to become less effective. But as the virus spreads, it's the successful mutations that we begin to see in the population. So it's it's this whole interplay between things. So that's a long way of saying that we're watching it very closely, but I don't think we yet have enough evidence to know for sure if it's something that poses a risk to the to the country, to the world, because we just need to see it in more contexts before we can say that for sure. Okay. Well, first and foremost, the idea of saying the phrase double mutant should be in the title of a horror film. It just sounds <laughs> absolutely terrifying. Absolutely. But, but that, so that one, and then also going back to the variants I mentioned, you've mentioned a few times before, Stephen, but just since Ontario is talking about increased infections and hospitalizations with young people, Dr. Osterholm seeing that children are being infected more readily. Again, is this something that's just proportionate to the increase of the surge? Or is this something that we see on any level that's unique to the variants that's starting to tap in and infect younger people and causing more damage or harm to the younger generations? Yeah. So this is the, the, <laughs> the truest answer is that we don't yet know. I I need to I should say that my my intellectual disposition is to assign uh to 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 basically have a preference for behavioral and circumstantial explanations for things before I say that mm -hmm. it's 
necessarily because the virus has a new behavior. Just because in my experience, nine times out of 10, that that actually ends up being the, the right answer. And so reasons why we might be seeing what we are seeing in the data without the virus necessarily being preferentially infecting young people or, or causing more severe illness in young people is that one thing we know for sure is that B117 and some of the other variants are are more severe on the whole. And so they might multiply the risk of hospitalization by some factor. And we don't know if that factor varies depending on whether you're young or old, but we can assume maybe that it's constant across all ages. If you combine that with the fact that largely it's the most at risk, the elderly who are vaccinated right now, and that many communities are opening up, young people have always, throughout the course of the pandemic, really been the the ones who have been responsible for doing a lot of the spreading of the virus, who have really been where a lot of a lot of the spread has really occurred. If you sort of start layering all of those things together, then what you end up seeing is that it looks like there that the increase in severity among kids is disproportionately higher than the increase in severity amongst the elderly, and that the average age of the person going into the hospital is really going down. But the question is whether that's because we're seeing fewer older people in the hospital or because we're seeing more young people. I I think the answer is both, but I don't think that it necessarily means that the virus has found a way to spread more easily in kids as opposed to adults. It's just found a way to spread more easily, period. And then there are all of these other elements going on. So I I could be wrong about that. There there may well be something as well that is causing it to be disproportionately more infectious, disproportionately more severe in kids as well. That'll take a lot more evidence to know for sure. And from what I've seen, I think the these other aspects can have such a profound impact on the data that we observe, a, a surprisingly large impact that, that when at first pass, you would look at the data and say, well, this has to be an attribute of the virus because it's just so clear. But I've been fooled by that so many times that yeah. I've become very skeptical of that as well. So, so I think for me to be convinced that it's a specific attribute of the virus, I'll need to see a lot more information. Okay. Good to know. Speaking of, you were mentioning Stephen, about how you can't just study a virus on its own. It's in relation to other things. Now, Mark, this might go to you as well. This article that I thought was pretty hopeful about T-cells induced by COVID-19 infection respond to new various new virus variants U.S. study proposes. So this seems like really good news. So that we're talking to we're all of our focus on the vaccine, rush the vaccine, but this could be to the 120 million people who have been roughly, we don't know exactly, who have been have had COVID and then now immune. This is good news. Mark, do you want to chime in first about this, this study of the relevance and how it, it might be helpful in the context of the current variants going on right now? Yeah, I think the only thing that I would have to, to add to that is that there's, as we've seen throughout, there's growing emphasis on the role of T-cell immunity in helping to to prevent future infection with COVID and, and T-cell activity in sort of in getting rid of COVID. Both of those things have been emphasized over the course of the pandemic. And so I think it's good news that it looks like the T-cell immunity that we're currently developing with any infection is also active against the particular variants. I, I think there could there be a scenario, you know, perhaps where we had a variant that escaped a human T-cell immunity from this, possibly so. These ver- these variants happen as a result of random mutations, and some of those random mutations cause the virus to not work anymore. Some of them cause it to gain additional function or a superpower that we see increase spread or something like that, and others are totally inconsequential. And so the fact that the random mutations that have persisted are still susceptible to our T-cell immunity, I think overall is, is good news. Great. And to throw this in here quickly, my confusion was I heard like months ago or maybe two months ago that there was some articles saying that, oh, natural immunity doesn't evade the new variants. And I don't know which one they were talking about. Maybe it was the P1, the South African one. I'm not sure. But this article seems to propose that the current variants, and I think I just left it at that, natural immunity seems to be good with. And then I've heard a month ago that it isn't. Is this new information or is there nuance here? Do you guys have anything to chime in about this or know of? Stephen or Mark? My sense is that the previous, both previous infection and vaccination 
don't necessarily provide perfect immunity, meaning that they don't guarantee that you will not get infected, either with the variants or or with the wild yeah. type SARS-CoV-2. There's always the chance of being infected despite having been infected before having the vaccine. The probability of that, I think, increases with some of the variants, in particular the P1 variant, which has some ability to evade the immune system. But also previous infection and vaccination seem to be extremely effective at preventing severe illness, symptomatic illness, and certainly hospitalization and death. And so I think think that part of what we're seeing here is a different line at which people are drawing to talk about immunity, because immunity can mean so many different things. And so it's it's like, does immunity mean total prevention from being infected and having any virus in your body? Or does immunity mean that you're not going to die and everything within that? And all of those are valid ways of speaking about immunity. But when it's compressed into a headline, it can get incredibly confusing. Mm. Yeah. Could you That's just good. say that again? Because I think it's worth emphasizing. I yeah. just had a conversation actually with somebody who, who told me flat out, they're like, well, the vaccines don't work on the new variants. And I said, no, actually, that's not that's not the case. And what Stephen, what you're saying, just if you don't mind, yeah. say it again. What it, how how do the vaccines interact with the new variants that we are currently seeing? Yeah, so it's it's a matter of probabilities. Where, as with everything with the immune system, our bodies have a whole distribution and variety. Our immune systems are as diverse as we are, and and so previous infection and vaccination both very much reduce the probability that you will be infected with SARS-CoV-2 of any type. You are a little bit more likely, if you do get reinfected, to be reinfected with a variant, particularly the variants that are known to evade the immune system. So P1, for example, is is one of the ones that we're seeing infecting people more frequently than wild type if they've been previously exposed or vaccinated. But on the whole, that group of people is being infected at all at much, much lower rates. Furthermore, the risk of hospitalization and death is very low with all of the variants if you've been previously exposed or if you have been vaccinated. And so that's all very good news. And so that's that. That's the issue here is that there's immunity can mean, do I get infected or do I develop symptoms or do I are we talking about likelihood or are we talking about a guarantee? And so I think that this is actually very similar to some of the difficulty that we have, we've had talking about masks. It's, it's a similar idea to saying that masks don't work. Well, what do we mean by work? I mean, what, what we're trying to say is that there's, there's this spectrum of risk where a mask can make it less likely that you emit virus and then less likely that you inhale virus. And is it going to guarantee that you will not become infected? Well, no, but it's, we're, we're sort of doing the same thing with the word work when we're talking about masks. What do we mean by that? As we're doing with the word infection here, where where there's just different thresholds where you can draw your line of what you mean by infection or protection. And and I think being very clear about that is is really helpful because the vaccines absolutely do give you substantial protection against the variants that we know of. That's super helpful. Now to add one more variable to may or may not make it more complicated. What about herd immunity? So there's two words now. There's herd and there's immunity. What do we mean by these two? <laughs> Are we talking oh, yeah. about a buffalo herd, a human herd, uh, immunity? <laughs> Serious now. What do we mean by this? And Fauci says 80-85% vaccinations of this country before we reach herd immunity. There are people now saying that, that they think that is not true, that we could achieve this with less percentage now, we just talked about the T-cells, which to me, that's really important, that natural immunity at 120 million people, roughly, who now have natural immunity for X amount of months with this many people already, is it still at that threshold? And what do we mean? So I want to know, what do we what do we mean by herd immunity now? Is it, <laughs> is it like stopping the virus or is it just, we just don't show it to anybody? We're, we're all kind of incognito holding it at bay is there is there a is there a measure of this? Yeah, it's I think you're you're pointing to something really important because again, we're talking about herd immunity, but the question is like what what do we really mean? Do are we talking about like the end of the pandemic? Are we talking about eradicating SARS-CoV-2? Are we talking about it no longer about it sort of having a similar level of risk as the flu on a population scale, on an individual scale, like across the world in our particular community? Like what are we what are we talking about here? And I think the answer is all of the above and all of it gets compressed into this idea of, of of herd immunity, and so I think I think to sort of break down my thoughts on this, that first of all, the the threshold of herd immunity depends on how you get there, because if you get there by natural infection, the the disease naturally sort of 
people who are most likely to spread it because they have many contacts are also most likely to acquire it. So they'll get infected earlier in the course of the epidemic. And so it's almost like you, the people who end up getting infected are, are exactly the ones you would want to protect to prevent the illness from spreading. And so, and so you can actually reach herd immunity oftentimes at a lower level through natural infection than you can through vaccination. Now, I want to say very clearly that that is not an endorsement of herd immunity through natural infection, because that still causes huge amounts of deaths and hospitalizations, right? So I think the best way to do it is through vaccination. But that's why there are these different thresholds that we've been quoting over time that maybe, you know, 60% of the population through natural infection, but we probably need closer to 80, 85% with vaccination. Variants, of course, play into this as well, because without the variants, that threshold would probably have been closer to 70, 75, but the variants are more infectious. That increases the number of people who need to be exposed or vaccinated in order to develop that amount of protection. And last, I think that, and this is the thing that I've, uh, a lot of my conversations have centered around with, with other folks I've been speaking with, is that herd immunity is not, it's not a permanent state either. It's a state that we can reach, but both the evolution of variants and the decline of our natural immunity can reduce that threshold that over time naturally will become sort of more susceptible to infection with SARS-CoV-2. Although I still think that previous infection and vaccination will still probably protect us on, for a very long time against the most severe outcomes. And so what you end up with is actually the amount of immunity in this population is this sort of wiggly thing that will sort of go up and down over time. And then once we dip below the herd immunity threshold, we'll get outbreaks likely, and then that'll boost us back above it. And we'll basically have a flu-like scenario. But hopefully our previous exposure, including vaccination, will protect us from the most severe outcomes in most cases. And and that's the idea we're reaching towards. So so it's this this tricky thing where, where herd immunity itself is sort of this dynamic state. It's this thing that that will constantly be attaining and then moving away from. At least that's 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 my perception of it. Okay. Great. Helpful. No, that, that helps a lot. Let's get into a few more things here. We have so much to cover, but hopefully we'll get a few more in before the, the hour ends. One thing I want to talk about is the COVID-19 cloud lifts as data shows a single case in 1000 is caught outdoors. This felt like pretty good news that like outdoors shows that it's extremely safe. This put it in context that I saw that 5,000 people just attended a concert with no social distancing and effort to test in-person events. Have you heard about this? I think I've heard one, one other time where people are actually intentionally crowding people together in concerts with unknown masks just to see, hey, I wonder what's going to happen here. Uh, is this part of your work, Stephen? Yeah. <laughs> this is not something I'm involved in. I've heard about it, though. It's there's where they've I think there was early on, I guess it was probably last summer, I think there was a study in Germany that, that ran basically three concerts with different levels of distancing and masking just to sort of see what would happen, which I think is a really interesting <laughs> idea. We can sort of break into the ethics of all of that, too. But but I think it happens. <laughs> And, uh, and so, it happened. yeah, and, and it does give, give some useful information, but I think that that's, yeah, that's, that's a whole, whole fraught yeah. kind of thing. But I think you're right. The, the fact that I don't know where exactly the estimate came from that one in a thousand cases can be acquired outside. And you know, that's, that's good. That, that, that really suggests what we've yeah. been pretty consistently aware of, which is that outdoor spaces are far lower risk than indoor spaces, generally speaking, for SARS-CoV-2 transmission. And it's just nice to, to begin to sort of pin those down yeah. with figures. And do you, does this mean like I don't have to wear a mask outside or is this like, is this still like advantageous to wear a mask if you're less than six feet away or is it just so safe that, hey, yeah, it's okay? Or does this mean anything different for us for at least outside hangouts? I think not yet, but but it's moving that direction. That that's part of the value of quantifying it is, and, and that's the reason why 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 we do what we do because then we can we can start speaking really precisely about these risks and saying, well, well, what is what is the trade off? Can can we take off masks? Is does outdoors plus six feet of distance? a sufficient level of protection. That's something we're thinking about a lot. And, and I think that may well be the case. I, I don't think that we're quite at a point where we would say, yeah, absolutely. But but this is an important piece of evidence toward that end. Okay, great. Well, now, of, of course, when somebody's really, really sick, it's obvious that you can see you stay away from them. Let's move to asymptomatic. The vaccine, well, there's more research in the vaccine, Pfizer, Moderna. It seems, I've read an article that says that it, it prevents asymptomatic spread once you had the vaccine. Now, it seemed very assuring in this article that this is like, I, mean, I don't think it said 100%, but it said pretty much, do you guys know anything about this? Is this really like pretty much, you? if once you had the vaccine and you're fully vaccinated, you're more than likely not going to spread it asymptomatically? 
where's where's the spectrum on this? Any 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 information on this, Stephen and Mark? I can start. I mean, so information again is still coming in on this. This was really the one of the key 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 questions at the beginning yeah. with uh, with the vaccines because <laughs> the vaccines don't help you reach herd immunity if they don't prevent the spread of the disease. Yeah. And so but but the evidence is very good that the vaccines are are pretty effective at preventing transmission. Probably like for the Moderna and Pfizer vaccines, maybe not the astounding like 95% efficacy that we saw against okay. symptoms. And but and it, part of this is because it's so difficult. It's it's easy to see if a person goes to the hospital. It's easy to measure if a person yeah. develops symptoms. It's much harder to measure if infection happens and who infected whom and does that exclude all of the other possibilities how much virus were they producing was that virus viable were they in the same space for the right amount of all of that is much and and that's why we it's taken us a long time to get information on this but we've been getting it and i mean it seems i think last i checked it was the estimates were like between 60 and 85 percent reduction in the risk of asymptomatic transmission it's a huge range but it's really good and, and part of this is what was behind the recent cdc suggestions that that a you could begin start mixing groups of people like one mm-hmm. pod of unvaccinated people with a bunch of other vaccinated people because at that point there's still a risk of, of spread but it, it becomes much 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 lower with when everyone has been vaccinated. And so so we're still gathering information but but it's absolutely is is protective protective in the sense that right. it reduces probabilities but not doesn't guarantee no transmission. Okay. Great. Now this is related asymptomatic asymptomatic infection is a deep biological mystery. I saw this article and it's fascinating me because Stephen Mark he has taught me a lot of things. One of the things you've taught me about is that basically if you're infected with something typically evolutionary wise the the virus probably doesn't want to kill you off ideally and it doesn't have a brain because it wants to survive, right? And so I saw this article and I was really confused. I'm like, asymptomatic infection is a deep biological mystery. To me, it's like it's common sense. Like we talked about this over. We're like, if I'm a virus and I'm going in there and I don't have a brain, but I'm like, my goal is I go incognito. Nobody knows I'm here. I'm just chilling. I'm having a great time. I'm having a bunch of babies. This is a great opportunity for me to have a party and nobody knows and I can live happily ever after. Why on God's green earth? Would this even be considered a mystery? Is there, is there something I'm missing in this science? Granted, I got a high school degree and I didn't do very well in science class. So <laughs> go ahead and tell me where I'm wrong. <laughs> I, I suspect the reason that they were talking about mystery in this particular article is because it's actually has some, it's pretty understudied or asymptomatic infection oh. in the grand scheme of infectious disease science because it's only recently that we've been able to detect asymptomatic infection. And so that was okay. that was my understanding and my gloss of the article as to why it's a mystery. And I agree with you from this evolutionary perspective of viral, <clears throat> excuse me, a viral epidemiology, it makes a lot of sense for viruses to tend towards over time, less symptomatic, or, you know, at least less highly, what am I trying to say? Less deadly manifestations. Okay. okay. All right. Steve, you have anything to add on this one? No, I I think that's exactly right. We have so Ed Yong, who's done this wonderful journalism over the course of the uh, pandemic, has a book called "We Contain Multitudes," and it's I, I I actually haven't read it, but I've read the jacket and I've spoken with many people who have read it. So <laughs> <read the> <laughs> it's on my list. Baby steps. Baby steps. But Steven. the idea is that it's that that there's we have a lot of microbes that live within us all the time, and and most of those are either they don't cause us symptoms. Some of them are actually essential for how we function. We need them. And so, and at sort of the, the emphasis of the book is on that as well. So just as sort of a counterpoint to this, that there is a lot of mystery, but there's, there's a lot of study of these microbes that, that we're in a sense infected with, but that sort of form an integral part of our sort of internal ecosystem. Okay. Plus the Whitman reference. Correct. Do you know, does Ed Young have, uh, have t-shirts like a band? Like I would wear an Ed Young t-shirt. <laughs> I, I always do. We should we should get on that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Somebody tweet him, email him, text him. I'll I'll wear I'll, I'll wear it tomorrow. <laughs> That's awesome. All right. Okay. So wrapping up here. Here's my here's my next question. This is let's talk about microbes and germs and this kind of stuff. I know this would be my soapbox, guys, but it hits me personally. CDC gives guidance on disinfectants. Now I'm not going to go down disinfectants route and like how do you wipe your. We've been down that road. That was a year ago. But it came this nuanced thing where like disinfectants versus soap and their guidance was basically, I mean, literally, I think I'm really right on when I'm just paraphrasing this. I'm not trying to exaggerate. Like if there is no known infection, yes, forget disinfectants, go with soap and water. 
Caveat, if there is a known infection, go with disinfectants. This is mind-blowing to me and confuses the heck out of me because basically what, what it sounds like to me is that this is not science, but psychology. This is, hey, if there's no known infection, ornamental things like soap and water, that's cute, do it. Feel good, feel good. But if there's an infection, holy crap, soap and water doesn't work, use disinfectant, which makes no sense to me because I'm going to usually live in my house during a pandemic as if there might be COVID in my house, not as if there's nothing in my house and I can just spit shine my, my, my floors. Is, is, am I, am I, am I, yeah, I'll step in. I'm going to use my, okay. some of my, my clinical language here for a second and say, I hear your right. frustration. You know, I, Thanks. I, 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 and I, and, and I validate, I feel better now. I think that's valid. Right. I think, I think yeah. it's valid. Cause I suspect that what first soap and water do work. It's not purely ornamental. Sure. Yeah. And I, what I, what I'm hearing, I think is a deeper level of frustration with somebody who's very detail oriented, receiving lots and lots of highly detailed contradictory information from lots of different sources. <laughs> <laughs> Over a year of extreme stress, right? And so, like here we here we have, you know, and so, so yes, like yes, yes, and yes. It is frustrating, and it is, I think, particularly frustrating when it's conveyed in a way that feels very highly detailed, very precise, and mm-hmm. you're trying you're trying to do your best because part of the way that you're living out your responsibility, you know, is to detail oriented. I think that's really admirable. Yeah. And something like this can really throw a wrench in the gears when you're like, have have my details <laughs> been wrong over this time? I don't know what mm-hmm. to do necessarily with that recommendation. I agree with you because it's like, sure. I don't know, like we, we have to, from an epidemiologic standpoint, we're, we don't, we're existing as if we potentially are exposed at different times and, and things like that, except for to say that the, the basics still hold in this case. And I think all yeah. of those of us who are involved in scientific communication, be aware that your words can drive some people totally nuts. You know? <laughs> <laughs> totally. It just leaves for gaps. Like I said, it just leaves for unnecessary conversations with other people sometimes. What yeah. does it mean? What do they mean by that? Like, why, why this and not that? I'm like, I have no idea. Well, then, so just, there was another, you know, guideline for CDC that you can reduce from six to three feet within schools. I'm like, uh, what's that? Some of this might be just negotiations with uh, school districts, obviously making it easier. Okay. It's hard to teach from six feet away. Try three feet, right? Uh, see if that works for you. As, but this is... I mean, I think kids the, don't even know what day of the week we could, they wake up in the morning and they're like, they have no idea what it's going to, what's going to happen that day. It's, is it a school day? I don't know. Maybe, maybe don't it's, know. A, it's, maybe it's a weekend. Six to three feet has no, no meaning at all to the, whatsoever. You know, the under three foot crowd in our uh, cohort. But <laughs> Totally. Oh my gosh. I think, okay. Well, I, I think we're going to end this here. There's still a few more things. I want to talk about Occam's razor next week. We'll plant that at seed or whenever Mark's back. Cause I don't want Mark in on that conversation. So we'll see. We're going to end there because uh, it's, we're reaching about an hour and we've got to get this edited and pushed out. Thank you guys so much for uh, all three of us being together been awesome for those of you who are listening thank you for listening again if you can in any way support us patreon.com slash pandemic podcast or one-time payment venmo venmo paypal on the show notes you can reach out to steven s-t-e-p-h-e-n-k-s-s-l-e-r on twitter check him out there if you have questions for us matt at livingthereal.com and i will send those emails directly to mark and steven i hope you guys have a wonderful and awesome week we'll see you guys all next monday take care and bye-bye